things that frustrates me. We talk sometimes about the the government's finances as though it's like a, a current account, as though you know, or you've only got two pounds left in the account. So that's not how it works. They are it's polit it's a political decision to decide to defund youth services because that's what you know. No one really uses that term, but that's essentially what's happening. You can't even really make a career these days if as a youth worker unless you're willing to work you know, in one specific position for the whole of your life, and even that position might not be secure. So how are we supposed to build up young people if we can't even build up a workforce around them to support their needs? All right, thank you for coming to the podcast, Samuel. How are you today? Thank you for having me. And I'm, I mean, I'm feeling great. I mean, slightly tired. It's been a long week, but yeah, I'm feeling good. <laughs> <laughs> nice, man. Well, you know what? It's interesting, yeah, for anybody listening. So me, we were just chatting just now, just before we started. Mm -hmm. I spoke with Ramel, like, I, can't, I come across, I can't remember how I come across your profile, mm -hmm. but somehow I came across your profile. I was like, yeah, all right, cool. Got to get this guy <laughs> on this podcast. And well, I'm here, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we spoke and then I remember I messaged you, I think on LinkedIn. Yeah. And yeah. then like, two oh, like two three days later i was in the gym um working out and you know that like, they got the news on the gym i was like wait yeah 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 i just spoke to you a few days ago on linkedin <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah 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 no i remember that yeah yeah no i i started the, the year off doing a lot of interviews around a whole host of issues um uh and do you know what like it's it's hard work actually to be honest engaging with the media because as you know it's just not it's not a level playing field out there and it's there's a lot of stress and not I, some people don't engage because they because they, they just don't want to engage they don't even want to provide a platform to the way in which certain issues are you know pushed in the media basically um and i'm lucky i'm resilient enough to kind of just decide you know what i get that but someone needs to speak out on these things so yeah it's definitely not a level playing field. I saw mm. some of the inspiration behind me starting with Thousand Voices, where mm. I felt that a lot of the stories were just way too negative. Mm. And there isn't enough being done to amplify other narratives, other mm. positive stories. I mean, there is negative sides to it, don't get me wrong, but the overwhelming majority of black people in the UK mm. aren't living the type of life that we see portrayed in certain, you know, movies or where. I'm mm. not saying it's bad, I'm not mm. putting that down in it, but I'm saying most people are living pretty regular life, you know? Mm, or maybe it's because mm. people do some amazing things and mm, it's mm. about bringing some of, some of these other narratives to light. Mm, for sure, for sure. I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, I reflect back on um, last year, I was really like completely shocked to be recognised as one of the kind of leading black voices in the UK. Um, and there were so many other uh, you know, black people from across the UK, from every nation of the UK who are doing incredible things. And, you know, you wouldn't know about half of them. Some of them do have a profile, fair enough, but a fair amount of them don't. And it is sad to me that there are so many uh, young and upcoming leaders in the, in the UK uh, across whole, you know, whole hosts of industries. Um, uh, and, you know, where, where's, where's the time to, to celebrate them? Um, and, you know, the media picture isn't exactly the same as it was 10 years ago, but it hasn't changed that much. It, let's face it, the, the portrayal of, of black people is still mostly negative. Um, and, um, you know, the positive um, the positive portrayal that we do have is quite typecast. So it's very specific. So as you say, it might might be kind of movie stars or, okay, but we're not all movie stars. What, how can we move beyond kind of movie stars or sports people, you know, the, the great footballers that we now have? That's great. But, you know, what about some of those 
you know, extraordinary, but quite average people that are, you know, average people that are doing extraordinary things is what I would say. So, yeah, completely frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in storytelling. I mm. believe that everybody has some sort of story or triumph for success. Or mm. I think everybody does. As long if they're not everybody's maybe willing to share in a vulnerable manner like that. But I believe everybody has something that if someone hears it and someone maybe that can relate to you, same area or field or whatever they can hear that and be like right okay this person's really a bit ahead they've gone through similar things that i'm going through right now mm. and they were able to overcome mm. um and again all of these little things you know like i kind of was the inspiration behind them absolutely and I, I mean i think that's that's why we have to create our own spaces um because one of the things that one of the things that i find quite interesting and this cuts across lots of different types of activism in the uk uh certainly cuts across lgbt rights uh if you look at anti-racism campaigning in the uk and the civil rights movement and all of those sorts of things um i think there's been quite a pivotal change in in people not just seeking out visibility and not even just representation um uh, but something a bit more meaningful where people can own a narrative can shape what it is that they're putting out into the world um and obviously you know the democratization of digital and the way that people can start their own podcast like you have or you know whatever it is um has seen a transfer in power it's not a huge transfer in power but some transfer in power but that's why i'm personally invested in those spaces you know that's why i'm here to celebrate um organizations like uk black pride like the black cultural archives because ultimately they're the ones that are putting in the work to to really showcase what it is that you know you know black brits are are doing and and it's vast and that's the one thing i want people to remember and enjoy um but that ultimately that visibility is the bare minimum but also kind of what you alluded to not everyone needs or wants visibility not everyone wants to offer that that vulnerability um and their own story um but there should be a space if they want to um and it should be about us collectively telling our stories so even if it's someone telling your story on your behalf it's still in through your lens and with the care and attention that's needed that you don't get from mainstream media ultimately there's no care and attention when you go on to the big you know i'm not going to single out one particular channel but when you go into these singular programs they're you know they're excited for your story because of the money it can make you or because of the views that they're going to get out of it but are they going to give you the, the care and attention to take time with what it is that you need to say and quite often that's just not the case and when you paint it like that it's like it's inherently exploitative because mm. it's about like what they can take from it but it's not about what it might do to you or what what you know, it's, it's nothing like that. You know, like when you look at some of these reality TV shows, mm. you know, for example, people go on and they bring in, generate, had a lot of views for whatever the channel was, and then they go away and then they're having to, they're having just crazy issues, but there's no aftercare. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, you know, I don't experience it on the scale of people who go on things like Love Island, etc. But, you know, pretty much my entire time doing media commentary, I can, exp it doesn't matter what I'm speaking on either. I'll, I'll never forget one time I went on what used to be, uh, it's now called Politics Live, but back then it was called The Daily Politics, uh, hosted by Andrew Neil. Um, and Joe Coburn, and I'll never forget it, went on and all, the conversation was about democratic engagement um, and lowering the voting age and how we can engage young people in democracy. And um, as, as, as happens with lots of shows, obviously it was put online. 
And I think it was probably the last time that I start spent any time looking at what the response was to any of my interviews, because despite the fact that race was nothing to do with it, the amount of racism that was in the comments on the YouTube channel, and yes, you can moderate these things and they get deleted or whatever, but they're still there to start with, right? Um, same with, you know, Twitter. I use a Twitter quite avidly. And ultimately, you know, if I'm speaking about trans rights, if I'm talking about anti-racism, um, I can expect a whole kind of, cohort of people um you know a small minority to be fair but a very loud minority to, to kind of come up against me and you know i some people sometimes some people kind of compliment me and they're like you know what Ramo, you must be so resilient and i'm sorry but there's a few ex expletives to be said in response to that because why should i have to be resilient to participate in public life and to talk about issues that i'm passionate about why should i need that level of resilience and you can see you know and, and we're when we're talking about um public life you know look at the the black mps and what they need to face in particular diane abbott and the things that she gets in response to again not necessarily talking about racism any particular issue and she can expect a barrage of abuse so yeah for me it's 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 crazy that we're still in this situation and it's sad really i like the way you well not like but the way you've explained it mm. um quite eloquently when you talk about having to be why do you have to feel like you need to be resilient mm. like you've been you've been doing this thing for a while isn't it like when i told you just before we started i was, I was saying that i found a throwback interview <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah from, from some time back you said it was more than, more than 10 years ago or yeah it's it's sad so i mean it's sad in the sense that obviously i mean it's it's kind of a, it's a positive story but it's sad in the sense that my story really started around about about the age of 11 um and i started a, a campaign so ultimately it was um with another friend at the time um and it was called bridging a gap and it was all about um uh, the gap um, that was the gaping gap that still exists between young black men and the police and the criminal justice system. And it was about addressing the m many fold, you know, issues, an array of issues, whether it be knife, crack, whatever it was, stop and search, all of the same issues that we're talking about in 2023, the same issues that came out of, you know, Baroness Casey's re uh, review were issues that we were talking about then. Um, and so, yeah, for me, this has been a, you know, I could never have imagined that I would almost make a career of being somebody who wants to advocate, who wants to campaign on issues. Um, but yeah, for me, that's when it started at 11. And obviously I'm 29 now. So, you know, it's been a, yeah, it has been a, a long old time. <laughs> it's, it's a very long time. Do that from 11 years old. Most 11 year olds are going to be playing games. Or mm, <laughs> mm. Oh, we still was, don't get me wrong. I still play the games too, but I was out there, you know, saying that ultimately, not only do I want a voice, but the people that I connect with want a voice on these issues that affect them. Simple. Was there like... Uh, a person that inspired you or maybe something that happened to you that made you realise like, all right, from that kind of young age, I'm going to start doing this kind of advocacy work. Do you know what? I don't think it, I don't think it was individuals. And it's funny when people talk to me about um, people that inspire me, there are plenty of people. Um, but if I'm honest, I, I feed off the energy of everyone I meet. Whenever I'm talking about something I'm passionate about, I feed off of that energy. Um, and along the way, people have inspired me. So feel, people like Phil Opokugima, who's the founder of UK mm -hmm. Black, Black Pride, uh, people like Ted Brown, who was involved in uh, the gay liberation movements, one of the few black men that, that are, we seem to, to, to kind of recognise, even though 
there were obviously others as well um, who was involved in, um, you know, the, the the kind of initial kind of LGBT rights movement in the, in the UK. Um, and so the people that have inspired me along the way, but if I'm honest with you, I'm, I, I was inspired and spurred on by my own lived experiences. So, you know, for example, when I started talking about the relationship between young black men and the police, you know, I got to the age of 18 and I've been stopped and searched 20, probably more than 20 times, certainly. Um, and I'll never forget when I did an interview um, with Ron K. Phillips, who's obviously still, a, I think even now is still a presenter, obviously, with ITV. Um, and she asked me that question. And I said, probably about 20. And she was shocked. Bear in mind, she was a news reporter. And even then, she was she was shocked. Um, and it just goes to show that actually, for me, you know, there were certain experiences that to me just seemed quite normal but they just should never have been a norm for me. And I think it was those sorts of lived experiences and the injustice that I felt or the injustice I experienced with other people and my peers that made me think, Do you know what, like, I'm a passion. I'm a passionate person. I was a talker then too, so I'm a talker. <laughs> How can I put this to use? Um, but also, I think I've always had a slight ethos, ethos of like, do you know what? I'm I'm passionate about these things. Um, so what can I do to contribute on on this? And I don't think that every young black person growing up in the UK should have to or feel forced to do that. But I do feel that kind of personal obligation, almost like a you know a custodian of the the times that we're in. Um, one that is lent to me by many other people to kind of represent and say do you know what things aren't right and things need to be different um and i guess also i think i really believed in my own power to convene as well like how can i bring in other people to the table to have their voice heard? and i think that was always kind of a part of where i grew from if that makes sense so i wouldn't say there was an individual um in fact sadly i think if you had asked me that same question when i was sort of between 11 and 13 i probably wouldn't have been able to name anybody um and i think that was part of the the reason and I, I could talk a bit about my other journey later but part of the reason i've got involved in things is ultimately not seeing the, those people that who looked like me in those spaces and it's just not good enough you know, when you talk about like um, you being people being surprised about you telling them you've been stopped and searched like a number of times, mm, mm, like, and mm. I think back because uh, that was similar to my experience actually growing up. Yeah, where yeah. Where it's just like that. It was just sort of normal, you know. You just get stopped and searched all the mm, time, and I've mm. had like some mad stop and searches. I've had some. I wouldn't even call it nice, nice event. Mm, mm, mm. I've had like some. I remember one time I was me, my cousin. I think me and my two of my cousins and one of my friends were running for the bus. Mm, mm, they were mm, running for the bus and then all of a sudden these police, this car skidding mm, in the road, mm, jumped out, mm, falling over, jumped out of the car, came mm, through mm, us on the wall. Mm, they said there was a crime. I don't like, what was, the, what was the description of the guys that committed the crime? Like they couldn't tell us, I'm like, we're running for the bus. <laughs> like, come mm, on. Mm, but that, that was mm. mad. Like it, the way they handled us was crazy. Yeah, and, yeah. And I think that's, it's, it's, it's the interesting thing that you, you bring that up because for me, it wasn't just the amount of times that I was being stopped and searched. It was the conduct I was experiencing. And I will never forget, I can't even repeat the words actually. I, I don't think it'd be appropriate for me to repeat some of the words that I remember experiencing when unfortunately my, one of my friends was wrongfully arrested. Um, and um, you, I will never forget the conduct. There were people showing concern obviously for, for, my, for my friend who at the time, we couldn't have been any more than 14 or 13, we were around that age. 
And the way he was treated and the way that the officers who were there were treating us, you know, saying, do you want to end up like him? And bearing in mind, they've got him up on the floor and you're essentially threatening us. And bearing in mind, we're just asking questions. No one's acting unruly. No one's, you know, particularly shouting. People are just saying like, what's going on? Like, why are you treating him like that kind of thing? Um, and then after all that, it turned out they had the wrong person. And I think that was the, the most sad part about it is, you know, you know the accountability back then was even worse you know there's nobody worn cameras it was your word against theirs hardly ever you know you used to get the 50 90 slips obviously now it's digital but back then you weren't getting no 50 90 slip really unless you unless you begged or you were going to make a complaint then they might give it to you but for the most part oh you don't want one do you nah now nah, you want to be on your way and to be honest i did you know um but I, you know and even days where there was even days where i was repeatedly stopped more than one once in a day and i'll never forget the day when i was stopped three times I was in three different areas, but the point was like, wow, I stood out three times today and I'm not wearing anything that should keep me from standing out. Um, so yeah, it's mad. It's mad. It's yeah. mad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was just norm. That was the norm. It, it, As a schoolboy in London, that's just it. Yeah. It's crazy. And you know, like them kind of, that kind of repeated sort mm -hmm. of stop and search because the way I see it is like, you're, You've, you've criminalized someone without them committing a crime. Mm. You look at them as if they're a criminal. Mm. And even if on the one in a hundred chance you might find something on someone, the 99, uh, the other 99 times, you're just, it's a build, breeding a hell of a lot of distrust between particularly black communities or people are stopped and searched a lot more and mm. the police. And that was how, what, 15, 20 years ago. Mm, mm, and then mm, we fast forward to 2023 and mm, that distrust is still there. Mm, Even though we got body cam, we got digital 59 mm, slips or whatever, mm, mm, but that distrust is still there. People mm, don't really, especially people that come from these sort of communities, you mm, don't really mm, trust the police. It's like, what has changed? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, I'll be the first to say, you know, we've had the Angoli review, we've had the David Lammy review, we had the review when Theresa May was in government, the review when David Cameron was in government, we had reviews with Tony Blair, Gordon Brown. We've had review after review. We had the McPherson report. I could name you, we've had Home Affairs Select Committee reports. We've had stuff from the Inspector on, on, on the Constable. We've had stuff from the IOPC, the, the, IO, uh, the IPCC. Before it was, I, I could list you hundreds probably of reports that have spoken about stop and search and have spoken about the disproportionality that exists and ultimately when you drill, drill down to it quite often police forces across the uk have been able to essentially move the garden pops around and go oh look there's something new when really ultimately the same old garden pots they had before are just standing behind the new ones and that's considered change and if you reflect on it properly you realize that it, it, it's no wonder that we keep having the same results because ultimately structurally the system is built to target certain kinds of people so i'll give you an example if i'm a 40 year old man um, I work for Barclays Bank and every day I get an Uber to work. Do you think you're getting stopped and searched in your suit on the way from Barclays? Doesn't mean that person's not carrying anything, by the way. And so, but we have a system where, where you know, we, we use certain kind of, we use certain train hubs. We go to Croydon Station, we go to Clapham Junction Station. And then we wonder why, you know, almost by, by forcing, you know, criminalising all of those people, of course you're going to eventually find somebody. But we, if, if it's structurally going to work like that, 
Of course, we're going to keep getting the same results. And of course, we're going to antagonize all of the innocent people, ultimately, who get tangled up in that. Um, and it's just, to me, it's not good enough. It's not good enough at all. No, not good. You keep telling someone you keep telling someone there's something ultimately a lot of people are just gonna live up to the label that you give them. Labeling theory. That you keep telling them and by doing stopping such a random people, you keep telling them over and over again from when they're young, mm. you're a criminal, you're a criminal, criminal. Often people might just live up to be like, you know what, like I'm it is what it is, like and just go in and do what they're doing. Mm. So I'm I'm not a big fan of that kind of mm. thing at all. Mm. Um and still on this uh, the youth sort of subject, yeah, something yeah. else that you're probably most well known for probably mm. your campaigning around especially yeah, yeah. about knife camp knife yeah, yeah. crime. Uh, how did you get into that and what was the like what's your relationship with that subject why was it that's something you're so passionate about yeah i guess obviously as a young black boy in london you know grew up around you know people who found themselves tangled up in in that issue so that was a kind of starting point um uh but um yeah i think it was around it might have been around about 2012. I can't remember the exact year. Um, uh, uh, someone called Jeremiah Manuel, who's uh, an, another inspirational guy, really, um, top guy. Um, uh, he approached me. He, was, he wanted to pull, pull together something called Wamba Community, which was about building a youth-led coalition of, 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 of young people and organisations who were passionate about the root causes of knife crime. So, you know, not, not looking at what we seem to get over and over again, um, which is looking at how we police our way out of these issues so the punitive measures how stop and search arrest okay right we've been there we've done that um you know if you just keep trying the same things we're going to get the same results right so it was about how how do we really look at what the root causes were what was underpinning it um and i think that was the kind of the start of i guess a more academic set you know part of my life in terms of really getting to grips with what it is that young people felt were the issues but more importantly let's not just ask them what the issues are. What are the solutions? What are the things that you think are going to transform your life? Um, and, you know, not just in terms of, um, you know, intervention for people who are finding themselves involved in those issues, but also in terms of prevention. How, what kind of, what kind of space can we create for young people? Um, and, you know, I look back on the reports that we did back then and the, the stuff we did with people like Kenny A. Maffedon, the, the list, you know, Temi Mawali, I can tell you all of those people, the same people are still talking on the issue now. We did all of that work came up with all these solutions, you know, we had the ears of, you know, the current mayor of London at the time, which was Boris Johnson, you know, the prime minister. We had as all of the key players really around the table, all of the biggest youth organisations involved. And it still amounts to ultimately lip service, you know, as a result of that, um, uh, something called the Youth Violence Commission was created. Um, and again, they did produce an interim report on a report very similar uh, findings that came out of that. So you've got years and years of organisations, of young people, of practitioners saying the same thing. But that's where my passion sort of derived from. Unfortunately, you know, Jeremiah lost a, a friend of his and he just said, you know what, enough's enough. And I want to I wanna be part of the solution. Um, and yeah, I was just one of the many sort of campaigners that he contacted at the time. And we came together and, and that was where it started really, yeah. You know, like as you're talking, there's like a sense of frustration because I feel mm. feels like we spoke about like the the trust issue, for example, mm. over 15, 20 years in your experience, in my experience, and probably loads of people I might be listening to this in their experiences is like that hasn't changed or evolved. Mm. Then we're talking, you're talking about how. You said, I think you said you started in 2012, right? Yeah, yeah, started. that was that was that particular issue. I'd, I've been speaking about it before, but that's when it sort of really like came together, I so guess. So, yeah. approx like 10 plus years, over mm, 10 years, mm, yeah. mm. and it's like, that was then, and now we're now, and mm. it's like, has the needle moved? Like, how much has really changed? 
But I, I, honestly, not much. I think, if anything, the issues have been compounded. So we know we have things like the cost of living crisis, etc. But we were talking about child poverty back then, let alone the issues that are have been, you know, expedited by, you know, the, the COVID and, as I say, the cost of living crisis. So if anything, you know, not everything has got worse, but the issues have been compounded by all of these other things. And we know that actually when we talk about um, the, the the approach that's needed, we talk we always talk about the, the health, you know, a health, uh, a public health approach um and and that's basically thinking about young people in the context of their well-being in the context of safeguarding them um because quite often we, again when we talk about this issue it's about the punitive measures how can we lock people up etc but actually why when when we know that the basis for young people being involved and engaged in some of these awful awful things is essentially a breakdown in most of the things that uh, you know uh, quite a lot of other young people can expect in their life um you know how how can we continue on that same kind of how can we continue on that same track and yet we have you know we look at youth services we look at social services we look at all of the, the things that are in place mental health services for young people cams all of those things that are supposed to be in place for young people to make sure that they can thrive and have a you know uh, at least a level playing field in terms of getting on in life and most of those things are de depleted. You know, look at the, the budgets for youth services. I think it's about a billion pounds missing per year from youth services across the UK. And then we expect young people who aren't who aren't affluent, who aren't who don't have maybe the, the, the best kind of grounds to work from to thrive in that environment. Let alone get do let alone just do okay, but thrive. We expect them to thrive in that. To me that's that's wrong. On the youth services, like I went mm. I was talking to my neighbour. Mm. A few weeks ago. I don't I don't know if he wants me to name drop him, so I'll leave his name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh if he listens, he'll know who it is. But yeah, I yeah. Actually, we went for a run. So I was running with him and he was, he was telling me that when he was growing up, he grew up in East London mm, and mm. there was all sorts of uh, youth clubs. He used to go to mm. one particular youth club quite a lot. Regular guy. Yeah, not yeah. like uh, you know, into anything, just a regular married man, regular guy now. Mm. Um he was like he used to go to his youth club and they used to go and play games and that. He said that the guy that the youth leader there used to like literally call him on the weekend and mm. be like, yo, have you done your homework? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm coming to your house, let's go to the library. Mm. It'll be a group of them. And he takes mm. the whole library and it, so it's more, it was more than that, just a youth club in the game, just like that community that uh, comes with it. Absolutely, you know absolutely. And that's the reason why youth services are so integral because they're able to be more holistic than anybody else. If your parents are, you know, working free jobs or whatever it is they're having to do to survive, your teachers are focused on getting you your grades, they ain't got time to really focus on anything else. Then where is that? Where is that piece? And okay, you might, if you're very, very lucky, make it into a CAM service if you've got some sort of acute mental health issues. But if you're just struggling, like most people do, just general struggle, who who is there to kind of wrap around and give you that more holistic care? And it was youth services. And I agree. When I was, you know, when I was growing up, you know, the the reason I'm able to do and articulate myself the way I am, the reason I have the social capital I have, isn't from my upbringing. Because a lot of people do wonder, like, oh, what was your upbringing like? I didn't come from money my parents would laugh at me if I even suggested I did um, but it was those youth services that gave me a foundation for connecting with like-minded people for you know for supporting me on things that I was passionate about supporting me when I was upset all of those things come from youth services and yet probably more than half of the services that I could expect to attend you know back in 2010 2007 that kind of period and before where are they now most of them yeah. non-existent. Getting Sad. Cut.
military spend growing up. That's mm. <laughs> another issue. I was reading the bio recently mm. um, where they um, recently said that they're going to allocate, I forgot, quite a few billion extra into military mm. spend and mm. whatever. But yeah, maybe they've misallocated it. But. but it's interesting <laughs> that we can make a commitment that, you know, um, for example, they always talk about military spend being a percentage of GDP and the amount that we put into NATO being a percentage of GDP. How about we do, how about we create those percentages for the core of the core services that we know we need young people and young adults to survive to to to, to thrive not to survive because that's the bare minimum but to actually thrive but there's no appetite for that and that's one of the things that frustrates me we talk sometimes about the back the government's finances as though it's like a it's like a um a, you know a current account as though you know or you've only got two pounds left in the account so that's not how it works they are it's polit it's a political decision to decide to defund youth services because that's what you know no one really uses that term but that's essentially what's happening when you talk about the fact that there is a depleted workforce of, of, of people you can't even really make a career these days if as a youth worker unless you're willing to work you know in one specific position for the whole of your life and even that position might not be secure so how are we supposed to build up young people if we can't even build up a workforce around them to support their needs it's within, it's within our best interests. Mm. Uh, these people are going to be the next leaders. They're going to be the ones running corporations and running governments and mm. running communities mm. and whatnot. It's within our best interest to make sure that they thrive mm. as best as possible, mm. for sure. Um, mm. But I guess not everywhere looks like, like that. Maybe they don't, they don't have that kind of a mindset or frame. I think, look, ultimately, when we look at the media, um, and I'm pretty sure it's about at least 50% are from Oxbridge, uh, when we look at our politicians, if we look at members of parliament, whether we look at uh, councillors in local authorities, uh, whether we look at the regional uh, mayors. So we've now got, obviously, we've not just got mayor of London, we've got, you know, the combined authorities. You look at every layer of government in the, in the UK and we look at the diversity uh, of those people. Um, and, and it's even worse when you include kind of, um, uh, you know, their backgrounds in terms of private schools and stuff like that. So even the diversity we do have is actually most of those people still come from an, an affluent background if you look at that and you realize this is it, it isn't rocket science as to why um you know across the political spectrum there's a vacuum of ideas for really supporting people to thrive because many of those people have not you know if you're somebody who's born into having the social capital the the people that will you know they, they might not need a youth worker because actually ultimately their aunt or their aunt's friend or the network that their their family have can provide that support and can provide that confidence and that advice. Some people don't have those things. So, you know, ultimately we have to build a system where people who don't have those things can get at least a baseline, at least a baseline and expectation that we have some sort of level, level playing field. And I, the funny thing is, is that it sounds like radical change, but it's not really, it's within grasp. It's not actually as radical as it sounds, you know, um, but I, I but ultimately, um, you know, the, yeah, there just isn't the political appetite. And that, for me, that stems from just not being able to relate to the issues. Oh, definitely. 100%. Mm. 100%. Mm. I agree with that a million mm. percent. Mm. I want to take a slight sidestep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And talk a bit about identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at work, well, last, yeah, last Black History Month. Yeah, yeah. So we had an event. So there's a community at work called Be Proud. Mm -hmm. um, we had an event and there was a panel discussion. What was the I can't even remember what the discussion was on exactly, mm -hmm. but it was a segment when they were talking about identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was two different black men on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And one of them was saying that, what had the phrase? He said that 
he doesn't like uh, going openly talking about his sexuality. Mm, he mm. never leads with that because mm, he doesn't mm. want to be defined by that. Yeah, so yeah. We yeah, just fair. talk to people as if like whatever, whatever. Yeah, if yeah. they find out, then cool, great, yeah, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Then there was someone else had a complete opposite view. He's yeah. like, he very much like celebrates that side of yeah, him. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's everywhere. If you know him, you know. Like, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. on social media. He talks about it all the time. Two Can relate very, to that, yeah. Two very different, <laughs> you know, perspectives. Yeah. But I, I do understand both sides. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. It's wondering from your perspective, a black, black yeah, man, yeah, like, yeah, what's yeah. your, like, do you lead with that? If someone asked you, who is Ramel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I'm just Ramel first, but I think I've gone past the point of being able to go back into the closet, you know, like, ultimately my sexuality is Googleable, so, you know, <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. And, you know, when I came out, I came out via HuffPost article um, and the article went very viral. Um, so, you know, from that moment onwards, I can't really take it back. I, I, I do think it's interesting, though. I, I think that ultimately, you know, our... Uh, you know, your identity is yours. And so ultimately, you know, you carve out the path that you want for yourself. Um, but also, I think in the context of, of coming out, you know, even even in the context of, as I say, you can Google, you know, who I am and what, you know, what I'm about. Um, ultimately, you know, in some ways, it, it's a constant conversation. Um uh, it, and not necessarily always through my own kind of, you know, wishes, but sometimes these things just come up. Um, but also I find it very interesting that ultimately, depending on how you're perceived on, you know, how you're presenting that day, people also have a perception of what your identity is. Um, and I've had plenty of, ex uh, you know, experiences. One particular experience stands up to me um, at a, a former workplace where, you know, this person essentially read me as straight for whatever reason, uh, which to me is funny because I feel like I'm just, I don't know I'm just me and I feel like I'm just very open um and you know they decided to go on this very homophobic rant and I just found it interesting to me because apart from it being very frustrating and quite violent ultimately because I'd been read as that way somebody felt com comfortable essentially to, to kind of almost sit in their homophobia um so I don't know identity is a very interesting thing but one thing I do think is that ultimately it's down to you know and that's why I earlier i talked a bit about why visibility can't be the only thing we're aiming for because some people don't need or want some people aren't safe to be visible um but also there's a consequence to visibility um you know i talked earlier a bit about the abuse you know i don't expect that everyone can or should and can't you know has the tools to navigate what that's like and i've been one of the things i'm always talking about passionately and i think is connected to identity and the reason i'm able to be so vocal is about collective care. You know, the other reason I don't like talking about resilience is because it wasn't, for me, some of the most pressurised moments in my life were not about my own personal res resilience. It was about the collective care that I could get from the many other people in my networks. Collective care, like community. Right, absolutely. But your own chosen community, the people who are in your life because ultimately they've got your back in some way. Um, and that's why, you know, I think sometimes we talk a lot about self-care. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, you have to care for yourself. Absolutely. Um, but for me, the most powerful thing is collective care. Who do you have in your networks that you're going to look out for and vice versa? Who's going to have your back in, the, in those moments? Because sometimes, doesn't matter how strong you think you are, sometimes you just need somebody else to, to hold you up. Um, and I and I reflect and pause on that and think that's why I can be so powerful in, in in the way that I talk about who I am because I know that I have that fallback and thankfully touch wood you know 
I haven't needed it many. I haven't needed it that much, but I know it's there, and that for me is where my power is from. And I think many of the people that are around me. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. I think there can be sometimes a lot of glam around activism and um, being able to be so open about your identity. I think it can be glamorized, but it comes with a lot of hard work and uh, and a lot of risk as well. So, yeah, I guess that's my my own personal story of identity. But also, I guess c connected to that is you know. And perhaps unusually so for a lot of black Brits, my family were very supportive of of me when I came out, and ever since since then they've continued to be supportive. And actually, for a lot of um, of lo a lot of black Brits, that's that's not the story. You know, the story of being homeless, of being disowned, of of you know constant ridicule, whatever it is, or of quite a strange and and kind of stressful relationship. And as I say, I feel very privileged that thankfully my parents and my extended family accept me for who I am. And, you know, yeah, those things, as, as I say, are rooted in the power that I, I have, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, on this identity piece, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. you're mo a lot more on your sexuality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you're a son, you're, mm. you know, all sorts of other things. And yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. You might want to attach to yourself. Um, and also, you're obviously a very passionate uh, very driven, you know, very passionate person. Mm. You've got things that you've been mm. campaigning and- Yeah, yeah talking about and raising awareness on for <laughs> since you were 11 years old yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, now, yeah a long yeah. time yeah like that journey of you sort of stepping into your power mm -hmm. uh, embracing your identity mm. what's that been like for you like is it something that you've consciously gone on it just happened through to be honest i think i think i think because i was passionate and so much of my campaigning was public campaigning i think it was a kind of a natural journey um but also, I think so. I think yeah, some of it was just rooted in my own kind of need to to use my own lived experiences and and, and stuff in my campaigning and the things that I'm I'm talking about and passionate about. So um, I think it was very rooted in that. Um, and yeah, if I reflect on you know, as I say, my the, the way I chose to come out and all that kind of stuff, it was very much. Do you know what I want to own my narrative and I want to do something with that. Um, and, you know, not long after I, I got involved in, in Pride in London. And one of the things, one of the things that's quite interesting about Pride in London is a lot of people felt well, like, wow, are you naive? Do you not know that, that Pride in London is, is a place, um, that ultimately predominantly represented white gay men. And I was, I had to just stop them in their tracks and be clear. I, I'm very aware of what Pride in London, I, I didn't, I didn't grow, I didn't get involved in Pride in London because I was proud of what the Pride movement in the UK looked like. Uh, I got involved because I realised that ultimately, if we don't have a Pride movement that works for the intersections of LGBT people in the UK, the most vulnerable people are going to be left behind. Um, and to me, that wasn't good enough. Um, and I, I recognise that I personally didn't need pride as much as some other people, but there were plenty of other people who really do need a pride that's going to stand up for them globally on the global stage. Um, and so, yeah, I think for me, those were very, that was very rooted in what I was driven by at the time and kind of, yeah, in that kind of early, yeah, that 2012 period that, that where, yes, I clearly got passionate about a lot of things in that period. Um, but yeah. It sounds like a busy. Yeah, it was. It was twenty. Yeah, twenty thirteen was when I got involved in Pride in London. You know, it's interesting you talk about Pride and you. Um, you know, you ended up leaving that, mm -hmm. and then you done. You was at um, volunteering at Bi Pride. Yes, and then yeah. you left that more yeah. recently as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was reading an article. Mm -hmm. so I read. I wrote down a particular line from it. Yeah, it's yeah. The one you wrote about leaving Bi Pride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, you yeah. said, "Where is it? I thought it was such an interesting line." 
um, about community. Wait, you wrote about communities being erased from mm-hmm. the wider narrative of our community story, despite mm-hmm. the many enormous and significant contributions of so many bio plus people across the country. Mm-hmm. 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 And then when I read that, yeah, um, it got me thinking about like 1,000 voices mm. in of itself. Because mm. um, you're talking about it from that lens mm-hmm. and by mm-hmm. pride and then mm-hmm. certain voices being left out mm-hmm. of that narrative. And I, got, mm-hmm. I was thinking about it in terms of like just the British narrative mm-hmm. in general, a lot of black narratives and black voices and mm. black stories just mm. being left out. Mm. And, you know, we, like we spoke about at the start. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering with you leaving, well, pride and by pride, yeah, yeah, what was, yeah. was it like driven by... Well, I guess it was, you said it was driven by the fact that some narratives are being left out, but... Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the stories for those two organisations were definitely very different. For me, the story of Pride in London was, um, you know, I knew what my own personal visibility uh, meant in terms of capital to that organisation. You know, I was one of the youngest and one of the, uh, one of only two black uh, people to have led Pride in London since 2012 um, as a director. Um, and I knew what that meant and I wasn't willing to be a curtain to the issues that I felt we needed to deal with. Um, and we had, um, you know, particularly uh, a lot of people of colour who were also LGBT, but, you know, strong black voices who were calling on Pride in London to be clearer about um, who it is who it is that they needed to associate with and making sure that actually our approach is intersectional. So, you know, um, considering partnerships with airlines who are deporting people or all of these things that across intersections and Pride in London were willing to use my face and pay lip service to, you know, the off the back of things like the murder of George Floyd. But actually, when it came down to making sure that, um, you know, uh, black people's voices weren't just heard in these particular moments in Black History Month, you know, in these kind of, but actually that were heard in as an integral part of our, the theory of change in Pride in London, it wasn't it wasn't there and then on top of that the the kind of the way in which black volunteers were being treated and i just thought you know what too many people had left before me who either didn't have the security or the platform to speak out and say what i did and i just felt you know what i'm i'm tired of this being an open secret amongst lgbt organizations it's time to put something on the record and now people who are involved in the private pride movement have the tools to really hold pride to account and say okay so what's happened since Ramel and the many other volunteers and um, you know staff that left back in uh, you know two years ago what's happened since then um, and you know they can be held to account from all, all, all uh, angles from their from their funders and their sponsors from the mayor of London um, and for me that's what that was about for by pride it was very different to me just that was about my own self-care and making sure that you know ultimately um i as somebody who's passionate that i'm not spreading myself too thin that i have that ultimately you know there's a, a lot of work behind community organizing and a lot of people don't realize that even just an annual event is a lot of hard work you know getting in the sponsors kind of pulling together the comms camp, whatever it was mm. and i just decided you know what i there are some things i want to focus on um uh and you know i want to build my own project this year and i just needed to refocus my energy so two very different stories um but i do worry because um you know it's the 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 people who might provide a voice to the the things that i was bringing up don't want to engage in some of those spaces because they've seen what people like me have gone through and i think is it worth it so, is it worth it? So what's the answer on getting more black voices? Is it like Black Pride, for example, things like that? 
So, you, yeah, I mean, I will always support UK Black Pride because I think there's a space for, as I said at the top of, 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 of this interview, I think it's absolutely imperative that there's a, you know, I think we need a bit of both. We need people who are willing to, to, to sit in some of those very white spaces um, and, um, and be at the table and make sure that actually that these, these other movements that claim to represent our, the wide breadth of our communities are actually representative. But I think, in the, I think we do need those, our other spaces where we can busk in our excellence, we can busk in our joy. And I get such great happiness from being in those kinds of spaces because I know that oh, I don't have to I don't have to worry about you know the the racism and the other layered issues that you have to face in some of these other spaces where people are quite often well-meaning but they don't realize that being well-meaning can have just as much impact as some of the most you know horrid and torrent abuse you can experience and sometimes it's even more hurtful because you've spent the time you've put taken the time to to kind of explain things time and time again and things aren't moving so yeah for me i think we need a bit of both um i i think we have to recognize the power and the influence in the structures that already exist and we can't um i don't think we can exist as a subset and a separate kind of society because we are affected by those structures um so whether we want to participate in the conversations about stop and search or abolition and the way in which we the criminal justice system um you know i th i think it's almost non-negotiable um, and in a great world, we wouldn't all need to actively be involved. But in some ways, I think we all do need to be actively involved, whether that is creating the space for ourselves or hammering in the in those the existing structures that perhaps don't seek to to promote people like us. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Cool. It's been great talking to you. Been great. Hearing, We've got to wrap up you. in a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, before we wrap up, well, final question I should say actually, as we're wrapping up, mm -hmm. what advice would you give to any other? Black British change makers, people that are wanting to drive change in their mm -hmm. lives, in their communities, just wanting to do some good stuff. Like, mm -hmm. what would you say to them? Yeah, I would just remember. I would just say um, it's worth remembering the graft involved in, um, you know, community organizing, in campaigning. Um, you know, note that you know people people see me getting invited to the nice events and they think, you know what, I I could get involved in that. Um, and I think, yeah, but it's not it's not the nice events that you've got to be worried about. It's me being up at two a.m. Uh, the day before an event, updating a spreadsheet. That's that's the kind of you know the grafting that's involved. So I think focus on on the work that's involved. Um, but secondly, it comes back to something I mentioned earlier, and I don't I'm, I don't even apologize for repeating it. It is that collective care. It is it is creating that network and finding like-minded people who are going to hold you up because you know uh, actually uh, we, we go back to kind of when I left Pride in London when I went left Pride in London um I put that statement out and I, I even though I had a whole plethora of people behind me who supported me um in writing the statement who you know helped me uh, there were journalists that I spoke to 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 get it out into the media and you know they were all did you know such diligent people that supported me but ultimately it was a very lonely moment because it was only me it was only my voice that was being put out there I was on putting my career at risk in some ways um uh, and ultimately it was the people around me. It was, you know, I think it was about 11 o'clock. The first person to call me um, was Phil Pokugima. And um, I, you know, she called me and I cried. It was the first time I cried in a whole ordeal because she just said, I I've got you. And I, it was sim as simple as that. She didn't even really need to say much more. And she did, of course, but 
and I think sometimes again when people want to engage in change making they you know they don't recognize just how lonely it is and so I think for me yeah my main advice would be it's that collective care and you choosing your network of people that are gonna you're gonna hold up and they're gonna hold you up nice that's that man thank you thank you thank you for coming on much appreciated my lovely conversation thank you for having me Oh, anytime, anytime. I really appreciate you coming down. For sure. Uh, as we're wrapping up, yep. have you got any last words? Mm-hmm. And also, if people want to keep up to date with you, the work you do, how can they best do so? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm prolific on, on social. So, yeah, or you can follow me on, on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, I'm at Ramified on there. So yeah, just get involved in in, in 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 what's happening. There's plenty of opportunities to to, to get involved in things, um, and you know I'm always shouting about the different work and the charities that I'm passionate about. So yeah, if you follow me on those channels, you'll you'll certainly see. Yeah, I'm I'm I'm. It's so funny. I feel like I'm actually better at sharing other people's work than my own sometimes. So I have to remember that. But um, yeah, no, yeah, they can follow me on there. Nice. All right. Cool. Awesome. Thank you for coming on once again. No, thank Much you. appreciated. If you're listening and you haven't subscribed yet, please do subscribe. It really does help us in amplifying the voice of these people we get on, getting these amazing stories as far and wide as we can. So please do subscribe, mm-hmm. like, share with your friends and tell your friends to like, share and subscribe as well. And that's that for now, people. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for coming to the podcast, Ramel. Thank you. This is 1000 Voices. We had the amazing Ramel Affleck on the podcast. And for now, we're out. Cool. There we go. That's it. Man. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, that was a lot. We covered a lot of ground in that. <laughs>